welcome everyone to our podcast, Land of People, where we interview practitioners and people with ancestral ties to the land. Uh, every other weekend, we release our interviews with folks we want to learn from. And um, I'm Melissa Kamara. I'm a conservationist and artist here on Hawaii Island. And I'm Clay Jarnick, an extension specialist at um, the Natural Resource and Environmental Management Department at University of Hawaii at Manoa. And um, yeah, we have uh, been cranking along here. I don't know, is this number 10-ish? Something along there. I, 12 oh man. or See, something? Melissa's a slave driver. <laughs> All I know is like, when's your, what's, when's your schedule? What's your schedule? And I, I really appreciate it because if this were all on my shoulders, I'd be on episode zero. <laughs> Well, we got to strike when the iron is hot, right? Because like we get people like Ted who are so busy and... Right. I know a lot of these have come up and it's kind of cool because it is sort of feel spur of the moment. You grab someone and they say yes. And it's it's been lately like, well, all right, tomorrow. Okay, (laughs) let's just do it. You know, sometimes I feel guilty because we're we get to just sort of sit and listen and and learn. And and this one today was was pretty awesome because I, you know, the kind of folks you don't get to hear from a lot, right? That they're not out in the front of this kind of work or spokespeople or anything like that. And they've just been doing it uh, and ha- for, for a long time. Yeah. We've been talking with several people, right? In the past who've been out there in the trenches, building the fences, to protect native Hawaiian forests up on the mountains, especially in really hard terrain. And, um, yeah. you know, Ted Rodriguez. Well, he was backcountry ranger yeah. for forever. Yeah. Uh, well, 10 some 10 plus years interpretive ranger at Haleakala National Park. Yep. Yep. And really pioneered, which you hear about today, uh, pioneered the animal removal from, from that area. And, and really through, you know, drawing on his community connections, like he said, he's five generations born and raised in Haiku, Maui. Yep. And, uh, you know, a lot of the things I think we take for granted, trying to sort of work with hunters and, you know, involve the public in these kinds of efforts and volunteer work and that, and this was just, they were kind of making it up on the fly uh, and, and, and be, but having success, right? They Ted really, and his cohort there were the pioneers getting this going. And uh, we do talk about how fencing in the national park was just not really ever done. Um, in yeah. Hawaii and even really on in, in the U.S. Uh, continent, you know, it was just the attitude at the time of animals in the National Park Service was frankly feeding bears and recreational viewing of animals. Right. It was not this understanding that in certain areas where we do want to have the native forest regenerate, that that, they're, that animals are going to be a problem and they need to be removed. And so just from that perspective, it's like, groundbreaking. Yeah. And then they're at the, that leading edge of um, really the, the, the sort of public pushback too, right? I sure. mean, we talked a lot of, more about that with uh, Ed Misaki, but this one was, you know, he was there too, trying to really get, this was brand new and people were not into it. <laughs> <laughs> and still, I mean, re- yeah. it remains controversial, sure. you know, I, I sure. think uh, it's sort of incontrovertible, uh, right? Like you can't really argue that these animals, um, you, we need to keep them out of these places. Some of these places that are, are still in good condition as far as native ecosystems are concerned, you know? So we're talking with people that they're 
people they're getting pushback from are their best friends, right? Yeah, so. yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, and and Ted was definitely, uh, you know, just wearing both hats, right? So as both yeah. the hunter, uh, as was Brian Nayole, and as a person taking them out of certain areas. Uh, yeah, and a lot about, like, just how do people kind of clue into this stuff and you just have to be patient. Um, yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just give the, the spiel, you know, the views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of the University of Hawaii or anyone else we're affiliated with. Um, yeah, we just try to keep this space open. No, I was going to say it's fun too when folks are retired because they can say whatever they want. I love that. <laughs> I know. I know. In addition to getting the Kupuna stories, we're getting the yeah. unadulterated, unlike um, filtered version. Yeah, it may change as we start talking to our peers. <laughs> yeah. We're still employed. See, we'll see with- where we can where we can poke and push a little yeah, bit. Yeah, exactly. So with that, I'll go ahead and introduce our next guest here. It is uh, Ted Rodriguez, retired Haleakala National Park in many different areas, but in specifically resources management on Maui. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you, Ted, oh, for right. coming on our show. Yeah. <laughs> I know we're not the first people to interview you. <laughs> I'm sure you've told many of these stories before, but I hope you don't mind repeating some of them to, for us. Can I just get it? Like, I forget how you guys work together, or how did you? How do you know each other? That's my first question. Yeah, well, working at the National Park and Melissa working at the Nature Conservancy, bound to meet. But even before that, though. Yeah, you were a volunteer coordinator. What am I forgetting? You were the best volunteer dog yeah. coordinators the park ever had. <laughs> oh, well, but, but even before that, Ted, 1997, yeah, yeah, Kanayo, yeah. fencing. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> no, it's okay. We've all have worn so many different hats. It's like, it's kind of crazy. Well, that's true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I got to meet Ted because um, I was working for the National Guard at the time. And there is a 4,000 acre training area, southern tip of East Maui, a lava flows and like some endangered species. And, you know, being brand new, I didn't know what to, where to start and what to do. So I read Lloyd Loop, Art Medeiros, and Chuck Hamera's report on, on the place and was like, wow, this is amazing. How do we fence it? And you guys had your hands full, I'm sure, with fencing projects, but bless your souls, you took it on and yeah. drove, you know, posts into the A'a lava. That was the beauty <laughs> about working with Ron Nagata and, and the superintendents at the time. They were very supportive of communities outside the park for conservation and allowed us to leave the park to do these things. It meant we weren't doing our job, right. but that was okay, you know? Yeah, right. yeah Ted, I, I guess we just got to talk about that fence because that's a deer fence, yeah, that you guys built for us. Yeah. And um, it, it was like a drilling holes. I don't even know. I don't even know how you guys did that and not die out there. Lupalupu <laughs> Ranch and their their partnership with us on that um, helicopter operations and flying material out there and doing all, all of that. <laughs> I just, uh, when coming down here today, there's, there's a private landowner building a fence around their property and they obviously were a construction company. I mean, they're using Kiavi post that's like 12 inches minimum in diameter. 
every 10 feet. Wow. Oh my God. I went by and they were walking down to work on the fence and said, man, you guys are doing a tremendous job on this fence. <laughs> you know, I can really yeah. appreciate that. <laughs> and they it for beer. Yeah. I mean, just the post alone, like, like you're going to choose a, a saw on Kiabe tree. That thing is going to start smoking, right? I mean, that thing, you're going to have to change the chain on that. Like how many times? <laughs> To, to cut the logs for <laughs> the post. I don't know where they, where they get in their post from, but you know, today, every one of those posts is probably worth a hundred bucks plus if you have to buy it. Yeah. You know, we're, you're talking 12 foot posts. Yeah. To keep yeah. I was going to ask you how, how tall the fence they're building. They, they're 12 building feet. Um, it looks like it's going to be six feet with barbed in the top. Hey, look at that. Oh, you guys. Wow. I, like an easy way to back up. I'm like trying to imagine where, you know, growing up he- here and, and, you know, some of the experiences, like did that, did ever cross your mind that you'd sort of be in that, doing that kind of work? Like how? Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, you, you know, those are the, <laughs> I grew up in, well, I'm fifth generation here on, in the islands. My ancestry goes back to Portuguese ancestry that immigrated here in the 1800s. To work wow. the sugar plantations. So my whole life has been here on Maui. So I've been able to see it from Keke to old man. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, I was born in Paia and I grew up in Haiku. Went to the local schools. And really back then, and we're talking the 1950s, the 1960s, they didn't really teach you about Hawaiiana. No. Right. The only native plant, if you ask anybody, name me a native plant, nobody could. The only thing they, they might say, well, silver swords. It's about the only thing because that was kind of known. Nobody could really mm-hmm. say what was Hawaiian, pre-Hawaiian, and everything around yeah. you where you grew up. There was no native species. Yeah. Right. Very, very little. Yeah. And in the ocean, yeah, there were mm-hmm. a lot of indigenous and some endemic stuff, but nobody really taught you that, too. There was no education on, on our part in the schools to teach you how unique Hawaii is. That came much, much later in life. And I'm talking like yeah. in my 20s and 30s <laughs> when I began to realize. But the realization that something was not quite right happened at a much at a young age for me. And it's just by observation and, and being a fisherman and, a, and later a hunter mm. and spending a lot of time out in the ocean and up in the mountains and begin to say, there's something going on here that's not quite right. And I didn't really fully understand native ecosystems. Yeah, grew up in the Hawaiian culture, Filipino culture, Portuguese culture, Japanese culture, and all those other cultures. I never really understood how unique Hawaii was. I think that it's a hard thing to communicate to people that have never been here is how changed the lowland areas are, right? Like how completely transformed. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I would say that just growing up in Hawaii and being exposed to so many things, the skills that I've learned from the interest that I've had and from the people that I was with, from the work that I did, all helped me later in life. Mm-hmm. And when I became a park ranger and played a really intimate role in helping to protect the mountains and the islands of Haleakala in Hawaii. And not just Hawaii, but even in some of the other places in the world. Yeah. So, Ted, did mm-hmm. you grow up uh, riding horses, and is that... No, absolutely not. Oh. My passion was to get down to the beach and go fishing. Okay. <laughs> my dad was a fisherman. Nice. He was not a hunter. He was a mechanic. Nice. He was oh. a really good mechanic. My mom okay. was 
uh, you know, she just stayed home and take take care of the kids, so to speak. And yeah. uh, so, uh, no, but it started. You know, my my passion was the land, of course, and the sea. And uh, I actually worked for. I was a full time commercial fisherman for a while and worked part time commercial fishing for over thirty years on my own boat. Oh wow! Wow. To be out in the middle of the ocean was as important to me as being on the top of the mountain. Your first job with the park was as a ranger, yeah. And these are the days for our listeners. Before everyone got so specialized. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. And had their all different jobs like, oh, I do only this piece and this person does that piece. Yeah. Rangers at back in the day, Ted were doing doing it all on horseback. Yeah, that came that came much later. Yeah, we we're talking about horses. And was it through like and this is where I get it because, you know, it's, it's the knowledge of the land and the sea, like those those kind of experiences. But also, I imagine just with people. Right. I mean, growing up and knowing. <laughs> yeah. Who who's here to like cherish these places? The thing that I really wanted to say is that many people taught me things that led to help me mm-hmm. understand conservation and how important and special these islands are. And it's not that they were themselves. But where they took me, what they taught me, what they showed me, helped me with my own realizations. And one of the things that always stood in my mind and actually gave me was my first time actually realizing how damaging pigs and cattle and animals were to the forest of Haleakala was a, being a pig hunter. This man was, he took me pig hunting and, and he used dogs only for pig hunting and knives. And some places he would use a shotgun. Yeah. And we went all over the place, Kenai, Waikamoe. I just followed, did what he asked me to do, carried the pig, you know, hold the dog, whatever. Yeah. Watch how he gutted the animals and took care of it and learned from there and did what he, what he told me to do. And one of the places he was, used to take me was a place called Ukulele. And you know where that is. Oh, yeah, I do. Part of Haleakala Ranch, right next to Waikamoe. It's magic up there. And uh, I used to go up there and say, what a beautiful place. And it was open land and it's grazing land mm-hmm. yeah. at the edge of the forest. And so on one side of the fence, you had forest, you had mm-hmm. beautiful forest. And then on the other side, you had grazing land with many, many trees. And these were native mm-hmm. trees. Mm-hmm. And I knew what they were, mm-hmm. the Ohio trees, Olapa and such. I didn't know how special they were and looked like a park. Great for hunting. <laughs> you know, you can see. Yeah. You don't have to push through the bushes and walk through the mud. Right. Yeah. And it was then that I realized, wow, this is what animals do to the forest. The cattle just cleaned out everything, break it all yeah. down, turn into a big open space. And the pigs rooting, turning into mud holes. Mm-hmm. One day I was up there with, with David, came to me and said, I need to protect this forest. Mm-hmm. And I had no real true understanding of how unique the Hawaiian forest was. And I told myself, don't ever forget that, that feeling, how important it was. <laughs> I get goosebumps thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, oh, so do we. But that was the first time without no knowledge, true knowledge of how unique and special these mountains were. I want to protect the forest. And as time mm-hmm. went, it took me in that direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Went to University of Hawaii during the Vietnam War. I had a college mm-hmm. deferment. And at that time, my interest was the sea and taking classes in zoology and such. I got a job on Coconut Island. 
the University of oh. Hawaii as, as a biologist science technician. Right. So, okay, great. This is what I want to do. <laughs> that brought me into the scientific community, working one-on-one with, with the scientists, studying mm-hmm. scientific method and actually practicing and doing it and having some understanding as to what that is. Yeah. But the call to Maui was strong. And when, when the funds ended and the project ended, even though I was offered more work there, I decided to go back to Maui. became a commercial fisherman for a while and did other jobs. So I applied for work at Haleakala National Park. So when I applied to work up there, they asked me what I wanted to do. To do and I said, anything. <laughs> anything. I want to work up here. Get me in. Get me yeah. in. <laughs> yeah. So one day they called me and they had a position in interpretation. Being one that was not one to really speak in people, in crowds, <laughs> very quiet and shy, not a role I really was looking forward to, but I saw it, okay, I'm going to do that, and became an interpreter. Oh. I had full access to the park library, which was really mm-hmm. nice, and I read everything that I could, especially mm-hmm. on Hawaiiana. <laughs> yeah. So, Ted, what year was this? 1976. Oh, wow. Okay. 1976. We spent many hours with people <laughs> talking and talking about the land. So I still had a call to go into the mountain and wanting to do that. Mm-hmm. And there were no fences back then. They would hire people on occasion to do animal control. And they also oh. had a program that allowed the public to go in and hunt mm-hmm. animals. They called it the deputy ranger program. I became involved with that too. As a hunter that went in and hunted, I got to learn the mountain that way, the local folks, and uh, walking was the way I had to do it because I had no horses. A backcountry ranger position came up, and uh, uh, I said, This is the job that I want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hunsinger was the superintendent at that time. Oh, okay, this is before dawn research. Yeah, you told me, Ted, I want you to apply for that job. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, sign me, sign me up. So it's kind of nice to hear that. Uh, Ron Nagato, who at that time was not really working for the park, but was doing a lot of volunteer work for the park, actually became one of the first backcountry rangers under that program, under that initiative to have a full-time law enforcement interpretation resource manager in the crater every day, serving the public. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So myself and later Kimo uh, Kabatbat was hired as a backcountry ranger, and I got that position. And I stayed in that position. <laughs> Ron Nagata eventually became chief of resource management. Kimo Kabatbat became uh, chief at other national parks. I stayed as backcountry ranger. <laughs> well, you, if you found your, your dream job, why would you ever want to leave? It was my little niche and it was kind of nice. Well, can you give us a sense of like what, you know, sort of, I don't know, day to day or week to week, but is this kind of, is it more like kind of checking out what's going on with the resources in the park or are you assisting people that are kind of wandering about? <laughs> yeah. There? So my routine was to come to work Monday, check in at the office and do whatever I needed to do there, then go down to the stables, get my animals together, pack them up, get the supplies that I needed to go in. And, and then one of the men that uh, worked uh, for maintenance and he worked on the roads and trail crew at the time and he was uh, the livestock person. His name was Wilfred Souza. Basically, supplies it would be to serve 
and maintain the facilities in the backcountry. Go in on Monday, and we would start at 7,000 feet and ride from there and go all the way to Paliku that day and stop at different locations and do work and come out on Friday. So I became a wrangler and a horse person and learned horses pretty fast. And so this is before, like, you're not doing, this is before fencing, like before kind of ungulate management, or is this? It was just starting. Just starting. Okay. 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 Just starting. I came to understand that a whole lot more because that became my responsibility. Mm-hmm. I see. Right. Had Hawaii volcanoes been fenced I yet? don't think they were doing much fencing, but they were already talking about it and they were doing a great deal of management. Yeah. Just yeah. getting, doing ungulate control in within the boundaries. They already knew that, yeah, to protect the, the, the resources, the, the right. forest and such, that they had to get some control of the goats, mm-hmm. especially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was those papers came out in the 50s, like Mueller, Dieter Mueller, Dumbois, and looking at the impact of goats in the low, lower parts of the park. Yeah. yeah. I remember some of those. With One of them was Yoakum that did a research on, on the goat population in Haleakala National Park. I don't remember the exact numbers, but we're only talking hundreds Yeah, hundreds here. I read it and I said, no. That's not true. Why that's not true? Because I'm there seeing what's there. And even though that was before my time, can't be. Because later when I became responsible for for that activity and went back and looked at all these other researchers and especially the deputy ranger program that started back in the 50s and there were records of Mm -hmm. animals taken out, they would have wiped out all the goats. If those numbers reflected what the population was, oh, I they see. would be gone. But no, there are still goats. <laughs> right. In other words, there's thousands, <laughs> not just a hundred or two hundred. It's a lot yeah, more. Not hundreds and hundreds. And, yeah, and because the, the park had open borders and uh, parts of the island of Maui on the dry side, which had huge populations of goats, was a continue continuous source of entry into the park right yeah and i'm sure it's fluctuating extra dry they're probably moving up elevation things like that so year to year lots of people really didn't realize how far these goats extended yeah we were taking goats out from hunter rainforest we were taking goats out from kipuhula valley yeah i bet i believe it yeah i've seen them in the alakai swamp like the deepest deepest parts like (laughs) these these shaggy dreaded like monsters (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, they go where they have to find food. They, they go and they get pushed out by other goats. Yeah. They go because they run out of food because they've eaten everything else from where they came from. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's marginal for them, but they they, they can there. handle. Some of the first goats you would see would be all these bachelor herds of billies. Uh, they get pushed out away from the herd because, you know, the dominant ones push them away. And that's the first movers that you see going into these new places. These old stinky old billies. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, my God. So uh, when did you start working on the fencing project, um, Ted? The idea of controlling by barriers started from a long time ago. And and you got to understand that uh, back in the days of the monarchy, they were already talking about animal control and fences uh, in Kalakawastein. Oh, really? Tell us. I I don't know anything about that. Oh, yeah. They talked about Kenai Valley and, and the wild cattle. And then also to talk about the pigs and destroying the resources, the resources right. that they needed, they used from the mountain, native species. And they weren't looking at it in terms of uh, the uniqueness of the species, but of what they 
people needed for themselves for subsistence. Yeah, there's some amazing accounts from uh, Kohala region on Big Island of just the uh, cattle just ransacking gardens and and uh, you know the, the dry oh, yeah. the dry ag fields. Yeah, fencing rock walls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to keep cattle out of villages. When that was said, we need to fence off the national park. People say, well, how are you going to do that? That's impossible. They will never get rid of these animals. It depends how much energy and money you want to put into it. <laughs> yeah. And I already realized that even though they were helping, they weren't reducing the population, these uh, yeah. local hunters. And they didn't want it to be reduced. Some of them understood why the park did it, but many of them just wanted the animals to hunt. So with, with uh, uh, pioneers like Ron Nagata, it started with electric fences and found out that that don't work very well <laughs> for pigs and goats. <laughs> you know, finally, we got to put something with more wire on it, like hog wire. Yeah. They started boundary fencing and, and getting the funds to do that required a lot of people and, and time and energy and understanding. Mm-hmm. So my role was ground level, get rid of the goats mm-hmm. and then eventually build fences and maintain them. And mm-hmm. so as backcountry ranger, I was, I was doing a lot of that. Most of my work was resource management, doing predator control for cats and mongoose to help protect the nene and other mm-hmm. uh, uh, native birds and goat control and some pig control. And I was there every mm-hmm. day, you know, five days a week. I give them my ideas to, to, to the resource managers. If you're building a fence here, there's goats there. Before you close this section, let's chase them out. And push them. Yeah. Yeah, get a little drive. Drive, yeah. Get most of them out if you can. There's people on the other side that want them. Yeah. Yeah, they're destroying right. the forest, but there's not any management. They have already destroyed it. Put them back there. Or to build fences in certain places to, to facilitate that. I had some of that because I knew the lay of the land. I had some of that knowledge. We had to do it on our boundaries mm-hmm. for the most part. And working with, with the, re- the new resource management division, I began organizing uh, animal management when the fences uh, was in place. Because up until the mm-hmm. fences was built, there was no point in doing, to put tremendous effort in removing the animals. They just keep coming in. Working. Yeah. yeah. There's just like an endless supply. Was there any challenges like uh, finding uh, employees and, and training folks up? I mean, because this stuff was so new at the time. It is. I grew up in the community. My classmates were, were the cowboys and the hunters and the fishermen and, and the truck drivers and the plantation workers. You know, they were like me doing for a living. And, and many of them growing up in with hunting ethnics, you, know, you you only shoot and take what you what you need. You're not going to yeah, take right. the yeah. females. You want to leave that. that. That is nothing for population control. Yeah, right. So I knew that. I understood it. I knew their 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 ethics. Right. That was my ethics. Yeah. But I also learned something different. I learned how unique the ecosystem was. I learned how unique mm-hmm. water was. We take it for granted, yeah. Water, yeah. yeah, and what it means to us, and everything else, and how how the mm-hmm. whole forest, and not just the forest, but the scrubland, how the mosses, the ferns, how they all came into play to help keep that water we need there, and to keep it clean and pure. Mm. How do you change people's ethics to understand that? Well, you don't. They have to do it themselves. Yeah. So while I was doing all these other things, I also had a lot of volunteers. 
And a lot of yeah. these hunt guys that uh, came in and hunting, they needed facilities so they could stay in the crater and hunt. But I can help you. <laughs> but you got to help me. I can bring you in as a volunteer, you know. Yeah. Oh, Teddy, what, what are we going to do? Well, I don't know if you want to do it. You're going to pull weeds. Yeah. And, and they're taking over and they, they, they're fighting with the native plants. And being ranchers themselves, ranch, ranch people themselves, they understood weeds and pastures. So well, what kind of weeds? Oh, thistle. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, thistle. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I can get you to cabins and you can come in and hunt. But you have this area. I'm going to show you. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to show you what to do. And we're going to pull thistle. You're going to count how many plants you pull. You're going to tell me how many is mature. Okay, we'll try. Hey, and a lot of these guys really got into it. They did their control. They had their horses. <laughs> they did their control and they could shoot goats. Yeah. yeah. And I spent time with them. And I never told them why we were doing this. And then they were oh. asking me questions. So when they asked me questions, I would ask them, what are you guys doing this for? You know, that's when I would tell them, well, yeah, it's taking over. There used to be yeah. money trees here. There used to be this plant, that plant, silver swords, you name it. Oh, so why aren't they there? Oh, well, the goats are eating all the plants and then the weeds come in. I'm not telling them that the goat is the problem. I'm telling them the weeds, the weeds are the problem. Right. Yeah, that's that all. And pretty soon they kind of put it together. I go to a local restaurant here in Makawao town, um, Kitaras, and I'm on a table eating Saimin. And one of my volunteers is with his cowboy friends, and they're grumbling about the National Park shooting the goats. And he said, yeah. said I don't care they're shooting the goats. I want my sons to see the Mamani trees in the crater. Oh, ah. oh wow. Okay. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> yeah, progress. It's working. Yeah, progress. <laughs> They're changing their ethics. Yeah, they cannot. They cannot just shoot and leave behind and waste. They, they, they feel it's wrong, but yeah. they can understand why the government is doing that. Mm-hmm. I had mentioned to you that we talked to Brian Iola yeah. and 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 Ed. And it sounds like almost exact same setup in such that like Brian is there doing what you're doing, doing the hard work on the ground. Ed is there taking taking a beating, frankly. Taking it on the head, <laughs> and the, you know, public meetings and all on that. On the public, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I imagine it, Ron and we, he's told me straight up. That's exactly the situation. He was getting it, and uh, you know, and and, I'm, and hopefully he was shielding it from you guys a little bit, or maybe not, <laughs> in terms mm-hmm. of the pushback, the community pushback. Yeah. Um, you know, what was it personal for you, or people coming up to you, like you know, um, just just giving you guys hard time about when when they did get wind about you know we're gonna get rid of the animals, we're gonna get fence, etc. Were you running into you know? that behind the scenes a little bit or was it mostly Ron do you think um, put it this way one of my best friends and one that taught me a lot about horses there are a lot of people that taught me about livestock trusted me so much that they uh, they gave me one of their animals to use for many years yeah here take this horse you can bring your wife in the crater with you he was so pissed off with the park shooting the goats <laughs> <laughs> and he, you know, and he, and he told me one day, I'm going to go in there and cut the fences. I looked at him, told him, you know, you going in there and cut the fences. Guess who's going to be chasing you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. so, you know, you, so what yeah. I'm saying is there's a fine line that I have to walk. 
because yeah. I knew I understood why I, I had to help and remove all these animals and use the skill and knowledge that I've learned about these animals, the behavior and so forth, and helping to get them. Yeah. And yet these were my best friends. Yeah. Right? That you cannot change their attitudes about it. And they were right in their own right, you know, to understand that that's, that's what they knew. Yeah. And unless they reach the point where I have crossed that line and understood till today, if I go hunting, I only want to shoot what I can eat or what I can utilize. Right. Sure. I cannot just shoot and leave. That's wrong for me. But I still understand why they don't belong. So we need people that have those hunting skills to get rid of the animals. You need people who are physically fit. You yeah. need people mm-hmm. who understood the Hawaiian ecosystem and how special and unique it is to have the dedication. You also need people um, who are sensitive to what they're doing. Yeah. And in yeah. some ways I say that because I don't like killing animals. And I'd rather have a hunter helping me with all those skills that don't want to kill, but doing it because they see how important it is Yeah, to save other things that's living. I was able to recruit volunteers to go after the goats. Mm-hmm. Mm. Had a core group of some 25 people that came from all walks of life, men and women, some more skilled than others in terms of uh, being able to shoot a weapon, but all understood why they were doing it and were dedicated to doing it and listened to what I had to say. And and I planned drives every month, two to three times a, a month sometimes. And a lot of these animals were in places where people really couldn't get them. It was difficult all on those high cliffs and you couldn't even recover them because too dangerous. Right. And so the vast majority of the animals, the, the goats in particular, pigs too, some, some deer, was taken out by park employees and volunteers. Amazing, Ted. I mean, you guys did so much work. Uh, I didn't get yeah. to see it from before. I only hear the stories of like, it's a different soundscape hearing the goats in the crater than it is nowadays yeah. with... It's so quiet yeah. in there, and like I can't even imagine how many were running around in there. Yeah. You guys had to figure out how how to get rid of them. Tell us about, um, if you don't mind, about the Judas Goat program because that's like your signature thing that you did. You know, tell us, tell our listeners like what it is, like because because we have people who have no idea what that even means and and how you even push animals. So maybe just start with the basics. All these animals are accounted for in numbers. Yeah, by sex too. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. By location. All of this was recorded and is in, and documented. Okay. One of the things that I did, nobody could bring their own ammunition. I controlled all that. Park mm. provided their own ammunition, the all commercially grade ammunition. People are not allowed to use uh, reloads and things like that. I I, I learned the hard way. <laughs> but anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like another interesting story. <laughs> I could tell you how efficient the hunts were going and how difficult the, the animals were being, how difficult it was to get them by the number of rounds it took to get a goat. Uh, yeah. yeah. So in the beginning, we were getting three rounds for every goat. When it started taking nine to ten rounds to get a goat, it was harder and harder to get, get them. Because there were less, there were few, they were far away. We had to change methods. <laughs> and, yeah. and of course, Rod, of course, the chief of resource management was, was, was one that initiated what we call the Judas Goat. 
Yeah. So because goats are very social social animals, we use that against them. So you need a goat from the wild, and the technology was there to put a radio collar on them, and you can track them from the ground, which we did, and, give, and, and you can triangulate and know more or less where it is. But the best way to find them was to have a helicopter. To get that all in place took a great deal of effort because safety was a primary concern. Working with aircraft is high risk. Working at low yeah. altitudes and rough terrain is high risk with an aircraft. So the protocols had to be developed for us because they were doing a lot of that on the mainland and tracking animals with airplanes and helicopters. They were capturing okay. animals with helicopters using net guns to get people really trained well, the crew members as well as the pilots and the aircraft. The Office of Aircraft Safety yeah. became deeply involved with that. Mm -hmm. They made sure that aircraft was in top prime condition. They made sure those pilots had the, mm -hmm. had, the, had the experience and skill to do those jobs. And they made sure the people that was working with them, the crew chief and the shooters, had the skills to do it. I was a park yeah. firearms instructor, a law enforcement officer and a firearms instructor. I made sure that they were trained to shoot guns and qualified them to do so. Yeah. That was my primary role. So understanding that the, the goat wants to be with other goats, you put a radio collar on them, they're out there all the time looking for friends and they'll join up with them. And that gives us the opportunity to find those last few goats and take those out. Some people mm -hmm. say, well, why, do, why don't you use nets and catch them and take them out? We tried that. Very expensive, extremely risky. I'm by Extreme, extremely, we had our own net guns to do that. We would net, we would net gun a wild goats to put radio colors on. The risk is just too great. Yeah. It was easier to go buy a goat from a cowboy. I see. Put them in the mountain. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. better. And, and there's interesting stories that go with that too. <laughs> I can oh imagine net guns. Goats that we got in cowpo from, we got from a cowboy that we put on the totally opposite end of the group, as far away as you could possibly imagine, like at Hulua, you know, the area, you know, on, on the on the west side of the crater. Eventually, cross the fences and go back to the same home range in Kalku and get caught again. Like I called me, you want your, you want your radio collar and go back? <laughs> wow. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like Goat's got his own ideas about he's where like, he's I'm going. I'm going home. <laughs> Screw this place. Bottom line is, it took the helicopter to get the last of the goats. But the very last goat of the original population that was taken out in the crater was taken from the ground. Yeah. Oh, wow. Because we were still doing that. We are still looking, observing. And this was my couple of cabin. Mm-hmm. And the only reason why... What, what, so what year? Do you remember what year that was? 1985-1986. But you got to remember, you don't know that's the last one. Yeah, of course not. You don't know until time has gone by because animals could still come in when a fence breaks for whatever reason. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah. So you have to yeah. know what came in and what didn't. So I know where the last goats, the last three goats was taken up by a couple little cabin. And, and oh my gosh. Ed, was that you, the last one, that you took the last one? <laughs> so I know you guys know who it was. I was the one. Oh, I the, right. I know the person that got it. Yeah. And it tasted good. <laughs> 7,000 plus goats were taken out from the ground. About 130 was taken from the helicopter. Oh, wow. Oh, Amazing. wow. All right. So those are the real hard ones, basically, when you're getting down to the... 
they're the smartest ones. They're, and those always are the ones that cost the most. Yeah. And then the job never ends because now it's in, in the fencing, no. you know, the fencing continues. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, then you're, then you're doing fence checks for, yeah, for that till the end of time. Yeah. <laughs> so Ted, I, I want to paint the picture for our audience because they may not understand the perspective of the part, National Park Service at the time was not about necessarily native ecosystems per se in terms in Hawaii. It was really about like feeding bears yeah. at times, you know, on the mainland. And so the idea of like taking out you know, mammals would have been like totally not something that the National Park Service would necessarily be doing at the time, right? And so just just on the national level, it was a huge shift, not to mention all of the understanding on, on the local level that had to happen, yeah, right? Yeah, you can imagine the political sort of yeah. internal, right? Of like, what? We're going to spend what? how much on this place? What do you, what? Millions. Yeah. You, yeah. You know, uh, kind of like the Mamani tree story. I got to share this one. Please. You can build a fence. I and mean, there's a lot of places where it's it's really difficult to put up a barrier because of cliffs, uh, because of uh, mm-hmm. streams, especially. And how do you address those? So that was fun and, and a challenge. And uh, this was a trip I was working on. And one of the most efficient ways to block a stream from animals coming in was go to a natural barrier. Best thing you can do because the water can flow freely and the animals cannot come in. You go to a waterfall. That's the best thing. So this was a trip. We're building a wing fence to go to a waterfall on Hanakaui Mountain on Haleakala. And I had a crew of local guys with me. Beautiful weather. Clear, wonderful weather. We had to fly in by helicopter to get all the equipment. We camped out for the week to do this. And we were near near kind of like a a small little creek, so to speak, a a drainage. And we were working. And... uh, and both these guys are local guys and they're hunters, but they understood why, you know, this was why, why the park got rid of the animal. But they held their hunting ethics, but something else came up. Because one of the things they observed that I knew, already the park was clear of goats for quite a while. And things were changing to the, on the mountain in terms of vegetation. Beautiful weather, no rain. And he would tell me, Ted, how come that, street, that little drainage is still flowing water? The light bulb comes on, a golden opportunity for another training lesson. <laughs> totally. Well, what do you think? What do you think? Well, I don't know. Where the water coming from? Did it, it, it rain? Don't you notice every morning you get up how wet the grass is? You're walking around, you gotta, we got to wear rubber boots on a nice sunny day because it's so wet. Yeah, but it's just condensation. It's just dew. Well, that could be making that tree more. Think about it. Look around you. Look up this mountain that was all stones before. Now it's covered with ferns and moss. And Ohella berries growing yeah. and Pukiyari starting to come up. All these plants are catching all that water. And all that water is falling down into the, into, you know, dripping down a little droplets, just like when you shake those plants and it falls down, goes in the ground. And it's been held there like a sponge and a filter. And that water is slowly moving to this little drainage and it's coming down like that's clear, crystal clear water to drink. That's where we get water, just from the plants. The plants is here now, we didn't have before. Oh, their light bulbs came on too. <laughs> light bulb. Yeah. And you know, um, this is back in the 80s. I'm, I'm talking 2023 now. 
And many, many things have happened since then. Uh, talking about the plant that started to grow on the top of Haleakala Mountain, Hanakawipi. It's only one little spot. Think about what has happened today. How much of this, not, it's not just here in Hale, at Haleakala Mountain, but everywhere in Hawaii, in many places. How much of that mountain today is protected because of fences and the control of the animals in it, mostly pigs? And how that has affected our water? There's other stories I can tell you, but I want to tell you this one because this was kind of like a realization that came to me recently. I remember as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult, when the storms came, all the big streams going to Hana, big major stream, Maliko Gauch, Kakipi Gauch, yeah. on and on. And you would look at the runoff that came from these gauches that went out into the ocean, rivers of mud flowing out, catching yeah. the currents, muddy water coming out of Maliko, going all the way down to Waihe. Guess what? You don't see that today. Yeah, there's, there's not water, water that comes down, but not like then where we'd be like miles out into the ocean and miles down the coastline. And you could look up big, big from places like Pukipa, up, up toward that side, toward the East Coast, and you could see all these plumes of dirty water coming out into the ocean. You hardly see that today because the right. mountain has been protected and the pigs have been removed and the forest grew. Water quality have improved tremendously just from that. Mm-hmm. And it, you don't need to be a scientist to know that. And now we just got to figure out the fires <laughs> on the west side. Yeah. 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 Oh, oh my goodness. So, Ted, I do want to ask you about, I know it's very unfair to ask, like, what your favorite, where your favorite place is, but I'm going to ask it. <laughs> favorite person? Well, oh, oh, well, it could be person and or place. You know, in, in terms of people, there's so many people, we all have that. So many people enter our lives that become important at that point in time. Yeah. People that seem so insignificant at that time because they were there all the time. You never think about it. Yeah, uh, you just right, take right. it for they granted. They get older and they're gone, then you kind of think about it. One of them was Bernard Gibson. He was our neighbor in Haiku. Bernard Gibson, he, that's his Hanai name. He was born in Kaupo, native Hawaiian, pure Hawaiian. He worked for Haleakala National Park for 16 years as a seasonal park ranger. He was a living treasure that nobody knew about because he held the culture of Haleakala in his heart and in his mind and in his experiences. His piko, his umbilical cord, was taken by his parents when he was born in Kaupo, brought up into Haleakala crater and placed in Kawilina, Barunas Pit. Old culture, living, working for Haleakala National Park. He was a janitor. He was a janitor. I worked up there when he was still working. But I didn't appreciate that. Not that he was a janitor. I appreciated that. <laughs> but, but the knowledge that he had. Right. Yeah. He used to ride with the cowboys when they drove cattle through the crater. He told me there would be one cowboy up front, cattle, and another cowboy going up the trails, up Sledding Sands Trail. He did that. Gone today. Crazy. Yeah, another, another time. Yeah, I, I wish you could talk to him today. And throughout life, you meet many people that, that teach you things, show you things from my parents to friends my age to uh, mm-hmm. oh, a thousand and one scientists that I met over the years in the park. People like Bob Hobby, Storrs Olson, Cam and Kate Kepler, John Cargard, 
Oh, endless path corner, you name it. There's so many people, so many people that you learn from each one, Betsy and Wayne, Gagne. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so glad you brought up your mentors. The other thing I wanted to know was the one place, the actual one or two or three. There, there are many. Like I said, I love being out in the middle of the ocean as I love being at the top of the mountain. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I will tell you one place because this place came to me when I was seven years old. Yeah. I was in high school in second grade, okay. and the doors used to be open at Face Haleakala Mountain. And I would look up there, not paying attention to the teacher. <laughs> and I would look up at that mountain. And that mountain was so far away, it was impossible that I would ever be there. Mm. I would ever be there. I looked at that mountain and I said, wow, I want to go up there. And I was a small kid, you know, that came to pass. But I, never, I, I kind, of, kind of forgot about it until I was 40 years old, so to speak. And it was on top of that mountain. One day I settled up my horse to go on a big hunting expedition on top of Hanakaui. Went to my favorite only single mamani tree growing up there in the brushland of Hanakaui. Tied the horse up there and go sit on a knoll to go look for the pigs. So you don't, I don't go chase the pigs. I look for them and watch and wait until they come out. And when I see them, then I go get them. So I'm sitting there waiting for pigs in Waikamoe, yeah, Waikamoe land. And I'm looking down. And I see little Teddy boy, Terry was my name. I see Terry in second grade looking up at me. I, the memory came back and said, wow, I know this mountain like the back of my hand. <laughs> right? Wow, what I wish for. So one of my most favorite places is called Ke'alahele. Ke'alahele, the place where the rays of the sun travel. Today we call it Haleakala Mountain. But the mountain is Kealahele. Yeah, Haleakala is someplace else, but it's a nice name for the mountain. <laughs> Kealahele. Oh, my goodness. I never knew that. That's amazing. That's what the Hawaiians call the mountain, but they saw it in different ways, too. They saw it as many mountains. The mountain I was on was Kani. at that time was um, Anakaui. Across on the other side was Haleakala. To the left was Kuiki. To the right was Halimo. <laughs> But the mountain was Kealahele. And there are other names too. Yeah, Well, I'm just, yeah, it's just so cool, the whole story of it, of how, you know, the success that you had doing what you were trying to get done and, and like without knowing the people that be able to bring them up. You know what I mean? That is such a success story as far as like involving the wider community in, in, in that work, right? I mean, and like I'm, you can't even probably imagine how that sort of trickled out from there right as far as people understanding what you guys are trying to do and exactly. yeah so you you know it's like when you want to save the forest what do you do plant a seed right <laughs> right yeah and then yeah you know we are the ones that are really the caretakers of that mountain now because we ourselves are the ones that have brought so many things to destroy yeah well i think i mean we've talked I think we've talked about this on uh, with other folks, but just this idea of, uh, you know, in conservation is kind of where people think about, oh, these are places where people shouldn't be. Yes. Right. And that, that or they think of people as apart from this, but it's like so clear. I think Hawaii makes it so obvious. I mean, lots of parts of the world do, but that, you know, these places aren't, they don't persist without us, right? Not only just knowing what's up there and the names like you're giving us and, you know, what, what's important about them, but just like 
you know, without our care, there, there, it just doesn't, you know, there's no, there is no place without, without the people as part of it. And you're right. And you're right in what you say. There's some places we shouldn't be. Yeah, no, for sure. I, you have to kind of be pretty, pretty careful with some, some parts, but even those places, right? Like they wouldn't persist in that way without knowing about them and knowing that they need a little extra, extra care. Spent a lot of time in Kipulo Valley and other places too. And, and getting the pigs out was quite a challenge there. And, and we did. Crazy terrain. Yeah. I would sit on a map and just look at a map and study it and say, where have we not been in terms of checking for pigs? Mm-hmm. We look at places. And one of my mentors and same age, kind of, Terry Lynn from Kipahulu. I have learned so much from that man. I thought, Terry, you know, this area here, we should check this area. Let's, let's you and I go there. We had to go to new country that we hadn't been before. We had to cross a stream to get there. We had to find a way to cross a stream. So that was kind of good <laughs> because it, that protected that area, Palikia Street. And we were going in there to go look for pigs. And we went partway in and it stopped. And we kind of both looked, we kind of both looked at each other and we both, both had the same realization at the same time. He said, there's no pigs here. We don't belong here. Oh. We turned around and went back. Just went out. That maybe yeah. other people can come here to see what's still left. Because here was a little tiny piece of Kipuhulu Valley that was pristine. Oh, and my never goodness. seen the pigs. Never. Right. Weeds. Wow. There were some weeds. And here, and here we were. We were going through vegetation that was really intact. There was hardly any mm. weeds at all. Almost zero. Mm-hmm. You know what? We're coming from weedy areas. we got to get out of here. We stopped and we went back. Never went back there. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it, it's a document. I don't know if anybody ever went there since, but no one has, to my not in my time, had gone back there. So that's the way it is. But you know what? Yeah. The Hawaiians were there. Uh, exactly what what Bob Hobdy said exactly. <laughs> in his when I asked him yeah. the same thing. The Hawaiians were there because when we crossed the stream, there was a place that they oh, stayed. Oh my goodness! Mm. Wow! And we we both had the eyes to see it. Amazing! Very cool. Yeah, pretty amazing. Way up there in nowhere. <laughs> yeah. 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 And they were up there for a reason. Usually, I'm sure they were up there some sometimes just to. Who can see, but you know, they were probably harvesting maybe birds for one, like feathers, not yeah, just the birds themselves. Yeah, that's no, incredible to come across places where you just, you know, see bananas and tea bush like just in seemingly in the middle of nowhere, right? You're like, well, somebody was up here. <laughs> uh, Terry Lee and I we were inspecting a fence and uh, we're, we're in Kaopahu, Manawainui. And we walked to the edge where you could look down into Kipuro Valley. And we were just reflecting there and taking a break, looking at the beautiful scenery in our rain gear and rubber boots. The Hawaiians was here. Between he and I was a cooking stone. And we knew what it was. It's still there. Right there. What does a cooking stone look like? This cooking stone was one that would have used to cook birds. And is it flat? Is it bowl-shaped? Like what? It's around. It's just like how they use emu stone for cooking a pig yeah. in a hole. 
Yeah. Or even out of a hole. Mm-hmm. You heat up a rock and use the heat of the rock to cook it. So this was, it, it looks like an ala stone, like a sling stone. It could maybe use it as a sling stone, but it's not. It's oblong, but round, oh. but oblong. Mm-hmm. And the perfect shape inside of the chest cavity, medium-sized bird, pigeon size, like an uau. Oh, right. yeah. So if you wow. caught one and you hit up a stone, it can easily break by the abdominal part. The bone just escaped. Mm-hmm. You could hit up a stone and just put the stone in the bird and it would cook from oh, the inside out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Food. Lunch. Right uh, there. That's amazing. There. Right there. <laughs> uh, and you don't see very many of those. I've seen. No. I've only seen three in the National Park. Well, that's. Three more than I've ever seen. I've never even heard of this before. Actually, That's amazing. I actually came across one that was at a site where it looked like they, where they, were, where they harvested petrols, the Uau. Okay, mm-hmm. sure. And that's how I learned that was a cooking stone. Because mm. it was right there mm-hmm. at the cooking mm-hmm. site. Where the, where yeah. the bones of the birds were still there in the charcoal. They still eat them in some parts of the world. The petrols, you can, you can still get them. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. One one observation, and we went back to goats and ecosystem recovery in the crater. When we speak of the dark rum petrol, the uau, it's hard to imagine how goats had an impact on the petrol. But from personal right. observation from before and after, I can tell you the goats had a great impact on the petrol. And how they had their impact is in their browsing and in their trampling. When I was there, another mentor, Jits Kunioki, a school teacher at Kulo, a uh, great school, he would work for the park and monitor nests. Describe about his searching and where he would find them. And it was always in the rocks and they would nest in burrows, but the, the burrows were mo- mostly natural cavities in rocks. So we assume, right? No, these birds dig holes to make burrows. But they couldn't do it on the cinder slopes or the flat ground. The goats were trapped. Right. And when the goats were gone and the vegetation started coming back, I and the population started of petrels actually started to increase in size. You could probably go to those that studied them but kept on studying those birds and know how the numbers change over time. Maybe make an association. Mm-hmm. I observed the nest that started appearing on the floor of the crater, on the sides of cinder cones, on the slopes of cinders, on the peaty bushes that they dug and made homes. Now I can imagine, because where you see them in the coastal zones, like they, you know, the... Um, the Waokani. Yeah, the Waokani, like they love getting up and in the roots there. And so, yeah, yeah, and they dig in there. Yeah. And they dig. They were dig and making their nests in holes. Yeah, I was down down Hokipo Park just this week looking at some of them. Yeah. <laughs> We have them right in town. We go down and right yeah. on, a, on Black Point and take, oh, the, take my kids down fun. there. It's amazing. <laughs> They're there. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. Major. So in my time, when I spent the night at Paliku and you never heard an wow on the cliffs. Today, when yeah. I'm still going to the crater during the season, they're all back there singing songs. <laughs> really amazing how many there is. You can hear yeah. them. Yeah. Cool. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, Ted, you, you've been retired from the park. It's 2010. Okay. Okay. And you're, you're still 
I mean, you're so busy. Like just being able to carve out like this hour and a half with you is like, oh my God. What? Like, But I just wanted to say that like you're still at it. Like you're fixing fences. I, I called you earlier this week. I volunteer now for one of the people that I used to. Well, <laughs> that, and then I called you this week and you picked up the phone and I didn't, didn't realize that you were like literally filling up a backpack sprayer. And I'm like, oh my God, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm sorry to be bothering you. I don't do anymore. I use my tractor. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> you were spraying and I was like, oh my gosh, you're just, you're just still just doing so many different things, fixing fences, taking care of your horses, taking care of other people's animals, I'm sure, helping. Well, I still like to go in the crater, and the best way for me to do it is on horseback. I can still walk it. I plan to do a hike in next month, three nights. Mm-hmm. So, but mm-hmm. limited to what mm-hmm. I can carry, but uh, I still have ways to get things there. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. That's great that you're, still, that you're still able to do it up there. That's awesome. I know. I mean, when I, I'll just speak to Ted's like persistence. Like even after you retired, when I was the volunteer coordinator up there, you were, you were like, oh, we got to go fix this, the paddock and all this work that you had planned. You're like, you know, now still doing that. Still doing that. I mean, I think I've been very fortunate genetic wise because my body's still healthy. Yeah. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm really fortunate to grow at a time that I did, and actually, we all are. Yeah. To see, to see, I, I, it really saddens me to see how much Maui has changed in terms of the numbers of people, especially the tourism. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I cannot go down to the beach anymore and enjoy it like how I did before. There's no room. There is yeah. no room. I can't even no, walk. It's, no. It's crazy. No, it's, it changes it's, the quality of life in some ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a hard one. That's uh, you know, extremely. Hard. Yeah, can't really. It would be a whole other podcast episode to get into that <laughs> one. <laughs> but but it is amazing how much people, the public, as well as the private landowners, especially how how much they understand how important it is to 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 protect the mountain as well as the ocean, mm-hmm, and how much yeah. uh, they contribute to doing that. How much the, the government, state, federal, as, as state and federal, and county, how much they put in to try to to uh, minimize and mitigate these issues. Yeah, the awareness is is so much more. Uh, whether the public likes it or not, here in Maui today, <laughs> the deer explosion. I laugh when they when yeah. they estimate the numbers of. Deer on Maui. Those numbers are the numbers that we were estimating like 20 years ago. But it's just crazy. But people are seeing the results of it in, in the destruction of crops, crops and land. Yeah. Deer starving on Maui. It's happening. People, not enough people know about that yeah. because they're eating themselves out of what they have. Um, road kills more and more every day. I saw another mm-hmm. one today. In Kula, the, the awareness, awareness of how these animals can be really destructive to the environment. Yeah, it's never, never ending, for sure. Well, you know, it's always, uh, it's hard. Again, most one of the reasons we're doing this, I think we all have a hard time uh, keeping a sense of time, right? Like what that, how the changes go. We always think like it's in the moment, it's what it is now, and we don't appreciate. Uh, 
you know, how these things have changed in the past. Ed had a lot to say about that, the deer of Molokai. He was pretty, he, I, he, he like helped ground that. He's like, ah, seen this before, you know, but, but like that, that whole, that whole perspective of like this stuff has been dealt with in the past. We've confronted these things in the past. It's not new challenges necessarily. No. Yeah, no, we really appreciate you taking the time uh, and sharing. Yeah, thank you so much, Ted. It, your mana'o is always just something I look forward to. <laughs> uh, there's always a new story. There's always something that I haven't heard. And it's so great to get your perspective. And and for our folks out there, you know, especially those who are new and involved in this work, it's like this has been going on for such a long time. So the things that you have been involved with, um, you know, from the beginning, innovating things, you know, that we now take for granted. It's almost like second nature like yeah 100% oh we've always been doing this fencing exactly. we've always been doing this animal no actually you guys had to figure that out and, and we yeah. we do love yeah. hearing about you know all the things that you help make happen mm -hmm. so mahalo <laughs> yeah thanks for all of that work I mean that's is like why we can go to yeah. Haleakala yeah. and see it <laughs> as it is totally <laughs> yeah. everybody does a little bit uh, yeah and you put it all together it makes Huge differences. Well, some people do a lot more. 